Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is the podcast where I help you get acquainted with the authors and illustrators whose book make up our annual shortlist. My guest for this episode is Michael Nicol Yaklanis. He is an award-winning visual artist, author, and public speaker. In his books, Red, a Haida Manga, and Carpe Finn, a Haida Manga, he blends North Pacific indigenous images, symbols, and frame lines with the graphic dynamism of Asian manga. When he is not writing or producing art, Michael draws on his 20 years of political experience in the Council of the Haida Nation and travels the world speaking to businesses, institutions, and communities about topics such as social justice, community building, communication, and change management. Carpe Finn, a Haida manga, the prequel to his book Red, is nominated for the Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. I have to apologize before I start the conversation that when Michael and I spoke on Zoom, the audio got a little bit garbled. In areas where it was too hard to understand, I simply removed those parts. But where I thought you could make it out, and because what Michael had to say was so fantastic, it remained. Here's my conversation with Michael Nickel Yachlanis. So I guess my first kind of question, just to start this off, Michael, is if you could tell me just a little bit about the story in Carpe Finn for those who don't know the book. In the book Red, a Haida Manga, a principal character called the Carpenter suddenly appears on a rock many, many miles out to sea. Carpe Finn is an explanation of how the carpenter arrived at that rock. It, Carpe Finn is also based on a historical narrative from the uh, west or uh, east coast of the Pacific, let me say. Uh, areas of Alaska and, and uh, coastal British Columbia have this story about uh, a gentleman who we call the carpenter. I guess I was curious about the choosing a, a manga as the, the, the means to tell a story and what drew you to the manga in particular. Mm. Manga is very popular, very populous based. It's, uh, it's extremely accessible in graphic literature. Uh, you don't need to have a particular university degree or, um, you know, you don't need to be a member of an uh, elite. You don't need to have a particular income. Uh, you don't even need to, to belong to a particular language group in order to read graphic literature. And so I love that the horizons are vast and inclusive. Manga in particular uh, speaks to relationship, longstanding relationship between Haidas and, and, and Japan. Uh, particularly in my lineage where my great-grandmother's father um, um, moved to Japan uh, in rather sneaky circumstances. And uh, the many men that went from Haida Gwaii uh, to, to Japan during the fur seal trade came back with stories about being welcomed and feeling very comfortable in, this, in, in Japan, being treated as humans. Uh, that was in stark contrast to uh, many of the experiences here under the British presence. So 
growing up, even, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, these stories persisted. And I was always struck by the difference between the story in my own family, in my own community, and the story that was more reflective of the internment camps and the war that the United States and Canada had with Japan. And it was that oppositional viewpoints that, that I thought there must be something in the middle. And when I looked at it uh, deeper, I thought we need to honor that there was a time when Japan refuge Fort Haidas and then became quite interested in, in, um, in, in manga as a way to express that without having to beat anyone over the head and wanted to really say the work that I'm doing does not necessarily follow the European tradition of comic books, but is closer to what I understand the definition of, of manga is, which is art without horizons, art without limitations. And then that allowed me to move beyond the, the sort of uh, captured, the engineered structures, techniques that are used in comic books, which are, are have these vacuous little empty rectangles and, and the stories embedded within the emptiness that is everything except the story. This kind of a deflates the, the beauty of the context by saying there is nothing important outside the story. So we're going to depict that as a, as a vacuous white space, i.e. the gutter. Haida iconography takes a, a, a quite a different approach, which is, says that the object is fully immersed in something much greater. And Haida manga takes that concept and twists the gutters and makes them these undulating, expanding, contracting, flowing events that, that surround the story, inform the story, impose themselves in the story, but also give place for the story to exist so that we're not pretending that we live on an island by ourselves or that we do not have a relationship to everything that is around us. So Haida Manga blends this bigger sense of cosmology and personal narrative together in, in a graphic form. What I liked about the use of gutters in, in this book and also um, in Red was it it breaks away from this kind of very linear storytelling to like there's a flow and yeah, you get kind of almost folded into the story in a way that manga and traditional graphic novels kind of moves you in one direction. Was that something you were thinking about as you were kind of playing with narrative and those gutters at the same time? Thinking about it and, it, and observing it as opposed to planning it out. Uh, now that I'm, I'm about to start another large project for a European publication, I'm more conscious that the story departs in ways that are difficult to predict. I'm trying to plot those out a bit better. And by that, I mean, if you take any point in the story, in the mural, and draw a line uh, 60 degrees off in any, and you'll see that I have seen, I have noticed that there are elements along that line, along that 60, 60 degree uh, trajectory that actually make sense. The, the shape of a hand, uh, many, many pages are far away from the face that's at the, that, that, that core of that departure point. 
they're, they seem similar. Sometimes the narrative seems to, to, to read quite well in ways that I didn't imagine and I didn't predict were possible. So something else is happening and it's, it's quite wondrous and it keeps it fresh and a new adventure for me. On this project I'm about to embark, which will probably be about a year and a half painting of a mural, which will become a book, I'm actually trying to map it out a little bit better. It has a, um, a, a kind of a European historical um, storyline and it also has a Haida cosmological storyline. And so I'm trying to lay out things on different lines other than simply uh, top to bottom, left to right. Um, it's, um, I, I think what I really enjoy about, about that um, is, is it even walking through our day-to-day -day lives, I think it, it, uh, it welcomes us to stop and puzzle over something that we uh, would perhaps not otherwise uh, pay attention to. If I'm doing an A, A to B thing, if I'm walking from here to the store, uh, the storyline is quite clear. Um, but if I'm open to points of departure, I may discover uh, some fascinating um, insect along the route that carries me off into the bush for a little snack of blackberries and, and, uh, and other sort of adventures. And I think that the Haida Manga mural is always trying to present these opportunities so that we're not just trapped in that little A to B uh, notion. Well, I think it, you, you bring up an interesting point, and it's a conversation that I've heard happening recently around um, the way stories are told and the colonization of stories in a way that we've been told to tell stories in a particular way, and that kind of A to B um, hero's journey kind of plot. And not all stories fit into that model. And I think the Haida manga is a really interesting example of that. Is that an important thing for you to think about in storytelling? Is that, you know, breaking open and and of course indigenous stories aren't told in that kind of linear scale necessarily you you know i'm i'm not i'm not a well-educated person in in terms of of literature or the theory of storytelling i'm humbled uh, into uh you know after about 30 years of working uh, at a community level it was kind of a career shift quickly realized that they didn't have uh, the kind of background that many other people who have very studiously examined their uh, career path have. Um, and then I decided to make the most out of my ignorance. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, the work that you see on paper is informed by my upbringing on Haida Gwaii and my life as a person of hybrid ancestry. Um, I, I need to leave it to to other people to sort of determine, um, you know, some of the details of uh, and characteristics of what I'm doing versus that of other traditions. But I, so superficially, I think I have I have a notion that the storytelling approach that I'm taking is 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 much different than those that we might typically see. Um, just going back to Carpe Finn, and I, I'm familiar with your other work. I. I when I work at the library, which I haven't done for some time, I often read uh, Flight of the Hummingbird to students that come in. And I noticed when I was reading Carpe Thin 
that there was also this theme of community and the importance of sharing and being in touch with other people. And I wondered if you could talk about why that theme is so important in the work that you do. The theme of a relationship between individual and community is one that that I've experienced in a in a in a life where a group of uh, apparently unimportant people, people with no financial resources or contacts to the to the um, you know to powerful political forces, stood up against very powerful corporate interests. This was in logging and to a certain extent uh, other resource harvesting proposals. And so this, I think that a, at that time, back in 1985, anyone would have said, well, we're new, who's going to, we know who's going to win this one and who's going to lose. And I think against all odds, this small uh, group of people prevailed. That was a profound experience for me to watch a small group of individuals uh, develop into a very strong social uh, movement force that that really spread uh, not only uh, across the province across the country but also had uh, a lot of an international conversation taking place it, it seems to me in reflection that there was a whole lot of trust going on when people stood on blockade lines or when people took unpopular positions uh, based more I would think on a sense of justice than on a sense of law I was moved to 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 understand that that uh, propelled on by this sort of moral uh, a moral compass really could prevail in in a, in a storm of of policy and law and legislation and um, think of the flight the hummingbird says it best when it says that I do what I can. There is no um, key that any set of actions that we take is going to result in a particular outcome. And perhaps this gives truth to the saying that, that the beauty is in the journey itself, it's, it's not in the destination. It seems to me that in, in a highly specialized world such as we seem to have constructed, that there is a, an inclination for individuals to be discounted, for us to rely on specialized services to provide us basic um, services such as uh, food and clean water and, and most importantly justice and I have a lot of pity for the people who really have to burden carry that burden of providing those kind of services to the rest of the community and I think that there's a need for us to, to take uh, a greater role in making decisions about our lives and making sure that our lives are wholesome and that our role as a community member is, is one in service to others and, and through that is in service to ourselves. The specialization is is useful in and not discounting that we, we don't need highly specialized people, but it's 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 an inadequate insurance policy for a life well lived. And I think too, like at the end of Carpe Fin you see everyone sharing together, which is Something I think we learn as children and somewhere lose along the way that sharing is such an important thing to do, but somehow we lose, we lose the value of that. And I think maybe there's many reasons for that. But returning to that theme at the end of this, something that seems so um, basic and, and built into who we are as people, I thought that was an interesting um, addition at the end of the story. Yeah, but that's 
kind of how the world really needs to work. And it's not just sharing amongst people. The whole system requires us to share. The, the you know, every, every birth is followed by death, and, but the death is, is, is a, a nourishment for, for that which will follow for others. Uh, it's a giving freely of oneself. It's a um, the killing of an animal done respectfully and with compassion and understanding that we are killing another sentient being is quite a different experience than a whole sla uh, slaughter or industrialization of a species for, um, for commodification purposes. And uh, so um, uh, I think that's what, what Carpe Finn is, is trying to examine is the type of relationship uh, that is best suited to our own survival uh, remembering that the initial uh, problem that people have with the carpenter is that the carpenter has created a more effective killing tool, and people are aghast. and And this is a this is a historical element of this story. Um, some people were um, uh, shocked by the efficiency of the of the tool um, that would kill more, um, perhaps more than could be handled. I won't go on a great length because the story exists in so many different communities. In other communities, they actually said, well, we abandoned the carpenter because we were jealous of his uh, skills. So I'm not trying to present kind of a um, sort of a pan-Indian view of, of higher consciousness that doesn't also include other other characteristics of the species. It's a beautiful book. I really enjoyed oh, losing myself Thanks. in it for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you cut up two copies yet? Have I cut up two copies? No. Uh -huh. Oh, you know about that? No. You, you cut up two books, and then you have these pages that you fit together, and you can reconstruct. Oh, wow. Well, now I want to do that this afternoon. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a project, but I've seen some people do it. And yeah. you end up with, uh, I mean, these murals are, are, you know, the original murals are very grand, very large, very expensive. But this is a way for someone for the price of two books to actually construct something slightly smaller scale but pretty close to uh, uh, the original and and that question becomes is there some clever person out there who's going to cut up the book and then link the pages together in ways that I didn't they're going to actually take parts different pages and fit them together in in new novel ways and are they going to examine that which you had wondered about which is uh, how does the story change from its linear format when the eye is is pulled even though the brain wants to resist the eye is pulled into a different direction entirely along the mural because of the of the, of the frame line yeah. uh, you can do that by actually cutting up the pages and fitting them together in, in innovative ways Thanks to Michael for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for tuning in and listening and sharing these episodes. If you'd like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you'll want to follow us on social media because we'll be making some really exciting announcements about our upcoming gala. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my special interview with Shalene Knight, the CEO and founder of Breathing Space Creative Studio. 
This year, the BC and Yukon Book Prizes began a partnership with Shaleen and the team at Breathing Space, and in my conversation, we'll talk about the work she's doing with us at the prizes and the important work that Breathing Space Creative is doing in the literary community. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.